Welcome back to another episode of the Unlearning Podcast. My name is Ashley Lynn Hankst, and I'm excited to help you learn to love Jesus and your neighbor through healthy, life-giving theology. If you are new to the show, welcome. I am so glad you are joining me today. Be sure to find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ashley L. Hankst. I would love to connect with you and hear about your deconstruction journey. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to the last episode to my interview with Andrew Janey, I want to encourage you to take some time to check that out. Andrew is an amazing guy. There's so much we can all learn from him, his journey and his ministry. I published the interview on YouTube as well, so you can check it out there for those of you who like to listen to interviews on YouTube. In the coming months, I hope to post a lot more content on my YouTube channel, including more interviews, vlogs, and videos on healthy, life-giving Christian theology. Deconstructing the toxic aspects of our Christian faith isn't just about how we think about our religion. Deconstruction is also about unlearning how our religion affects our behavior, our habits, our health, our mindsets and relationships. And so my plan with this YouTube channel is to show you how that occurs through videos and interviews. So be sure to subscribe and stay in the loop. You're not going to want to miss it. Today, I want to begin a four-part series on helping you develop a healthy and Christian understanding of sex and intimacy. This framework that I'm about to unpack for you is not from the heart and mind of Ashley Lynn Hankst. No, these are not my thoughts. I am definitely going to add stories and examples to provide some clarity from time to time, but the core of this sexual ethic is not for me. The principles and ideas that I am proposing are part of a healthy Christian sexual ethic rooted in the scholarship of two amazing theologians. The first and primary work that I am pulling my ethical understanding from is Catholic feminist theologian and scholar Margaret Farley. Margaret Farley's framework for a sexual ethic is found in her book, Just Sex. The book is very scholarly and deeply dense and highly respected in the progressive academic Christian community, which is probably why so many people haven't heard of it. Um, it really re does read like a textbook. So that's why instead of just recommending the book to you, I'm going to unpack it to you in the course of four episodes. The other thought leader I'm going to present to you is the amazing Bell Hooks. If you are unfamiliar with Bell Hooks, I want to encourage you to stop listening to this podcast, head to the bookstore and purchase anything, anything Bell Hooks has written. Bell Hooks is a brilliant author, a prolific black feminist who has unpacked so much of what we're talking about today in compelling and accessible ways. You will enjoy reading her books, I promise. The book that I would highly recommend to you in light of what we're talking about in this series of episodes is called All About Love and the companion book called Communion. I will be pulling from both of those books throughout the series, but I would encourage you to check out her work yourself. Even if you don't agree with everything Farley and Hooks have to say, I want to encourage you to read and listen with an open heart. This episode, like every episode on the Unlearning Podcast, is an offering, not a definitive answer to all our sexual issues, 
Life is a journey, and this is an offering. And we are all on a journey. So here are my journey notes to you as an offering. I'm excited to introduce you to their work and provide for you what I would like to call a healthy Christian sexual ethic. So let's begin. In her book, All About Love, Bell Hooks asserts that there can be no love without justice. Let that sink in. There can be no love without justice. In my episode on the wrath of God, I outlined how that relates to our understanding of God and judgment on the topic of hell. In today's episode and in the forthcoming episodes, I want to help you apply Bell Hooks' statement to romantic relationships. There can be no love without justice in romance and in sex. There can be no love without justice. Margaret Farley agrees with Hooks, hence the title of Farley's book, Just Sex. Farley explains that the core definition of justice is to render each what is due. Render to each what is due. If someone stole something from you, then it is just that the thief give it back what what they stole. If you are a paid member of a gym and pay for the use of all the services, it is only just for the managers of the gym to allow you to use all the services. Justice is to render to each what is due. Farley elaborates on this idea of justice by encouraging us to follow this basic formal ethical principle. Persons and groups of persons ought to be affirmed according to their concrete reality, actual and potential. End quote. So this is this is justice for Margaret Farley. Justice is when people are affirmed according to their concrete reality, according to their needs, capacities, relational claims, vulnerabilities, and possibilities. What does Farley mean when she says the concrete reality of others? Farley affirms that we all have biases. We see and interpret other humans, including someone we're attracted to, through different biases. A bias can be cultural or historical or even social. Given that we have biases or certain filters, it is especially important that we are intentionally affirming, not according to our biases, but intentionally affirming people according to their needs, capacities, relational claims, vulnerabilities, and possibilities. I know that's a mouthful, but think about it. Think of it this way. It is very easy for people to objectify women or to see women as objects of their sexual pleasure. If we are being honest, there are plenty of women or LGBT people who treat others this way too. So this is not a jab at men. Objectification is not a straight white male phenomenon. The point is that we object when we objectify a person, we are rejecting their humanity. We are rejecting their con create reality and allowing our filters or our biases and selfishness to take over. To affirm one's concrete reality is to affirm their humanity, their innate human dignity, and to respect it. We all know from Paul in 1 Corinthians that love seeks not its own. Love is not selfish. Love does not dishonor. Love always protects And so we need to intentionally go against our biases 
and affirm the concrete reality of the people we are romantically involved with or interested in. Farley also explains that our concrete reality includes, and I quote, not only our lover's present actuality, but their positive potentiality for development, for human and individual flourishing, as well as their vulnerability to diminishment, end quote. We will unpack the idea of flourishing in a later episode in this series, but for now, consider the idea that individual flourishing could be a priority in your relationship. Consider the fact that it probably should be a priority in your relationship. I truly believe that my marriage with my wife should enhance the quality of her life in other areas. Our marriage should nourish her self-confidence. It should nourish her understanding of her own self-worth. It should nourish her ability to go after what she dreams about and desires. I mean, this is how my wife's relationship with me affects me. Farley believes that when you really respect the concrete reality of your lover, you are respecting their needs, vulnerabilities, and encouraging their own personal flourishing. Again, we'll go more in depth on that in a later episode, but just for now, I just want you to think about that. Is the flourishing of your partner really a priority to you. Farley believes that there are two aspects of someone's personhood that we are obligated to respect whether or not we are in a sexual relationship with them. The two aspects are a person's autonomy, that is A-U-T-O-N-O-M-Y, autonomy, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that word, autonomy. The two aspects are a person's autonomy and a person's relationality. We use the word autonomy when we describe a person's independence or their right to decide for themselves who they are and what they want out of life. We use the word relationality to describe how a person relates to someone else. And so Farley believes we are obligated to respect a person's autonomy and relationality because, and I quote, the ground they ground an obligation to respect persons as ends in themselves and forbid the use of persons as mere ends, end quote. So when we intentionally respect someone's autonomy or right to decide for themselves who they are and what they want, when we intentionally respect how they are relating to us and how they are relating to others, We are understanding the other person as a whole human, as complete in and of themselves. They are not an object to be used for our pleasure. Our love will not complete them. We are not, we are complete with, with or without the other person. The person we love is whole in and of themselves. Loving them is not a means to an end. Respecting your partner's autonomy is respecting their freedom of choice and respecting the freedom of choice in your love life together. Farley explains that autonomy is, and I quote, a capacity to determine the meaning of our own lives and within limits our destiny. It is a capacity to set our own agenda, whether it is one that is good for us and others or not, end quote. Obviously, this can and is often done in relationships, but respecting someone's autonomy is loving and respecting them and staying connected, even if their autonomy conflicts with yours. To violate someone's autonomy is to deny it 
criticize it, ignore it, and to, end I quote, absorb them completely into your agenda than respecting the one that is their own, end quote. A lot of times conflict over autonomy in relationships happens in expectations. One partner expects certain things from the other, whether it be sexual intimacy or perhaps the frequency of sexual intimacy. Respecting a person's autonomy means you do not see your partner as a means to an end. Your spouse is not, even in marriage, an object to be used You are in relationship to a whole, complete, independent human being whose needs, capacities, relational claims, vulnerabilities, and possibilities are important and as equally important as anyone else's. As relational creatures, we understand our existence as we relate to others. I am an intern. I am a wife, a youth worker, a pastor. I am Cuban. This is all my understanding of myself as to how I relate to others around me. But my relationship to others is not something to be used as a means to an end. I am not an object to be used at work or at church or even seen as a disposable object as the daughter of an immigrant. I am human, valuable in and of myself. Farley describes humans as terminal centers and ends in ourselves. In some way, we both transcend ourselves and yet belong to ourselves. Within the context of relationships, Farley goes on to say that we, and I quote, belong to ourselves, yet we belong to others whom we have stretched out our being through knowledge and love and loving knowledge. In knowledge and love and in being known and being loved, we are centered both within and without, both in what we love and in ourselves as we hold what we love in our hearts. End quote. I love that. We belong to ourselves and we belong to others whom we have stretched out our being through knowing love and loving knowledge. That is how I want my relationship with my wife to be experienced. My wife knows my love and how I express it and has loving knowledge about me. What she knows about me are my needs, vulnerabilities, insecurities, and she holds it lovingly. And I want to do the same for her. Now, I know that today's episode is philosophically dense, but that's where I wanted to kind of break it up into four episodes because there's a lot to unpack here. And it's so important that we really think about these issues before we step into Farley's seven principles of just sexual ethics. We must see and respect our partners for their full humanity. And in using the words of Paul, we must take every thought captive that does not affirm and respect our partner's full autonomy. Think about Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We must renew our minds with healthy understandings of human sexuality. People ought to be affirmed according to their concrete reality, according to their needs, capacities, relational claims, vulnerabilities and possibilities, and we should be known for our consistent ability to affirm one another's humanity. The evangelical church teaches Christians that you are not your own and that you were bought with a price. 
We often misapply Paul's words to the Christian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 by telling teenagers that they have no right to have sexual thoughts. We tell young adults and singles that they cannot choose whoever they want to love. Your body does not belong to you. We hear that directly from the evangelical pulpit and indirectly in relationship to evangelical Christians. Your body was bought with a price, and that price is Christ on the cross. Now, I fully accept and understand the Christian doctrine that we belong to Christ because of Christ's propitiation for our sins on the cross. Remember that the word propitiation is a theological term for good enough sacrifice. Christ allowing himself to be crucified on the cross, that sacrifice was good enough The cross was and will always be the blessed gift of propitiation for our sins. But the cross of Christ does not mean that sex is bad. And that does not mean you should hate yourself for your sexual feelings or your sexual experiences. The propitiation of Christ does not mean the objectification of humans. It does not mean we are to beat our body into submission when we long to express our love for others through sexual intimacy. Christ dying on the cross for the sins of humanity affirms human dignity. I'm going to say that again because I want to highlight that and underline that in your mind. Christ dying on the cross for the sins of humanity affirms human dignity. The cross affirms the value of human life, of human souls, of our lived experiences as human. Christ came so that we may have life and have it abundantly, not so that we could beat our bodies into submission to the evangelical church. The evangelical church teaches youth and young adults to be ashamed of their sexual desires until they get married. And once they get married, the objectification continues. We preach Paul, not Christ. We preach Paul when we preach that married couples have conjugal rights to sexual relationships with other with their partner. We preach Paul when we teach that wives must have sex with their husbands, even when they aren't in the mood or don't want it. I know that sounds crass, but that is a literal and common interpretation of First Corinthians chapter seven where Paul wrote, and I quote, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. End quote. Paul's understanding of sex goes directly against a healthy understanding of autonomy and relationality. Please understand, your partner is not obligated to force themselves to have sex with you, even if you've been married for decades. Your partner is an autonomous, independent being with freedom of choice, with needs and capabilities, and their own desires. To truly love them in a healthy, ethical Christian way, we must respect their own desires. We must respect their rights to choose, including their right to choose us or not to choose us, or to choose sexual intimacy or not. The freedom of choice is a good thing. It is a healthy value. And as Christian people, 
We must allow the Spirit of God to deconstruct any toxic understanding of sex and love if we're going to have the ability to develop and maintain healthy romantic relationships. It is important to understand that the author of 1 Corinthians is Paul, not Jesus. Jesus did not tell people they were objects. Jesus did not tell people they were bought with a price and that their spouses owned them and their sexuality. Jesus said nothing about sex apart from condemning adultery. Let me repeat that. Jesus said nothing about sex apart from condemning adultery. When it comes to sex in the Gospels, everyone points to the verse in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. End quote. As evangelicals, we have taken this verse to the extreme to mean, that a- to mean that any kind of attraction to anyone is sinful. But given the fact that you cannot commit adultery unless you or the other person is married or in a committed relationship, then whoever is doing the sinning in this verse, according to the text, is in fact in a committed relationship. Jesus' words do not apply to all people in all situations of attraction. It's very much about being married and lusting after someone who is not your spouse. I would caution against any kind of thinking that you can commit adultery before in your heart before you actually commit it physically, okay? That's a very common evangelical thought that someone can commit adultery in their heart before they even commit it physically. I would caution against that because you're putting a heavy, heavy weight on your thoughts. And our thoughts every day at any point can just run the gamut. And just because you think a negative thought doesn't mean you act on it. and doesn't mean it's, it's part of you. It doesn't mean that's who you are. You are not your thoughts. But it is a good idea to protect your heart when you are in a relationship by intentionally stopping yourself from dwelling on sexual thoughts about another person or about someone who is not your partner. Because dwelling on sexual thoughts about someone who is not your partner is playing with fire. Proverbs has lots of warnings about playing with fire. When we allow our eyes or our attention to dwell on people who aren't our spouse for the sake of our own sexual pleasure, this too is a kind of objectification because the object of your lust is a means to an end. There's nothing wrong with being single and ready to mingle and finding another person attractive. Attractiveness is not a sin. There is nothing wrong with being a married person and dressing attractive. Part of being attractive and giving serious attention to your health and how you look and how you come across is part of developing your autonomy and your self-confidence and nurturing your self-love. We should all aspire to look and feel our best, no matter where what our relationship status is. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on this topic because sometimes any mention of lust can be triggering for people. It can trigger all kinds of religious trauma and shame brought on by the purity culture. The bottom line is, instead of punishing and shaming people for having sexual desires, Let's teach one another to see and respect each other's autonomy and relationality. Let's grow in our own understanding of our own humanity and trust that God will help us 
as we go on this journey of love. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Unlearning Podcast. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to unpack Margaret Farley's seven principles of a just sexual ethic. You won't want to miss any of this. So please hit the subscribe button and please share this show with others. I'm so excited and grateful you are here. Unlearning and learning in a constant pursuit of growth and maturity. Until next time, my name is Ashley Lynn Hanks, and you are listening to the